I'm a little disappointed in that part of the tape. I thought it was louder than that and clearer, and it's such an old one. I took off of the reel-to-reel tapes with that special introduction Brother Hale had, and he ended it the way I always remembered it being ended, with the last verse instead of singing the chorus again. Um, Well, that's neither here nor there. I can't fix it up now, can I? We're in Matthew 13. We're talking about the parable of the wheat and the tares. Our Lord spoke in parables according to prophecy so that some could understand and some couldn't. Now, this particular parable, like the parable of the sower, he gave an explanation for. And uh, the truths involved in these parables are just wonderful. So let's let's read the, the parable itself. Matthew 13, start with verse 24. And it says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, an enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay. Lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the root with the, the wheat with them. That both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Go over to verse 37. We're going to find the parable interpreted. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. And therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, and so it shall be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. And shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father who hath ears to hear let him hear let's bow our heads just for a moment father we ask thy blessing upon the reading of thy word to those who are listening by tape and to the few that are here tonight we need to learn by nature we're at enmity with thee a lot of these things don't set with our reason, with our minds. We ask for faith to believe. We ask for thy spirit to give us an unction from on high. Teach us. Let us be humble 
quiet listeners, but learning the great and mighty truths from thy word. This is a serious lesson of wheat and tares, and we ask you to bless our hearts with it. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. There's an overall learning in all of these parables, and you notice that we're not talking about the kind of ground like in the parable of the sower. Here we have a man sowed good seed, and it was all good seed in his field, and we're told that the field was the world. So this is going to take in all people everywhere. But especially when he says that the kingdom of heaven is like an adult. This kingdom of heaven is going to not take in the Mohammedans or the uh, Buddhist or the outside. We're talking about the professing church with true believers and with unbelievers professing to be believers, okay? It's all-inclusive. Now, there is a common faith, a temporary faith, and a faith that is precious and special and only peculiar to God's elect. There's that bad word again, elect. You know, it's the most precious, one of the most precious words in God's word to his people. If it wasn't for God electing, we would never have an interest in Christ. Turn to Titus 1.1. I want to show you that the Bible teaches that the elect have a special faith. Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Now, every little point of every verse has meaning to it. You see, and nobody but God's elect acknowledge the truth which is after godliness. Now, what's that truth? What you are by nature the enmity of your carnal mind and heart. These are the things that make you a candidate for salvation. The rest of the world never acknowledges the truth of God's word, which is that they are depraved, needy, vile, filthy sinners. This is man by nature. They need a substitute redeemer. Only the elect ever find that out. All right, now we have one other scripture concerning the faith of God's elect, and that's 2 Peter 1 1. 2 Peter 1 1, it's an introduction, and it's interesting that Paul and Peter both can introduce their letters by talking about faith. Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. 
You see how it comes, huh? By the righteousness of Christ. Our God gives us faith to believe in the righteousness of God. And that righteousness of God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And then that leads you, knowing where righteousness comes from, to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ for keeping the law perfectly and earning you a righteousness. Not too many people think about that. It's so far beyond human reasoning and imagination that people just fluff it off, just pass it off as nothing. It sounds too much like a fable or a fairy tale. A perfect person that is totally beyond human imagination. But because God gives us faith to believe him, faith to believe his word, that's believing God, this is his word, that the Lord Jesus Christ did no sin. And at three different times, a voice from heaven came down and said, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. Meaning he did not sin. He did not sin as a youth. He did not sin as a young man. And he did not sin even to the moment of his crucifixion. There was no guile found in him. He did no sin. A special faith has special operations in God's elect. Now when we talk about common faith and temporary faith, there's a common faith among men, mankind, and we've talked about that often in various messages. Faith in your parents, faith in your teachers, faith in your boss, faith in your best friend, faith in your wife, faith in your husband. Those things are common faith. There's temporary faith that God gives to some that hear the gospel and like the thorny ground hearers or the stony ground hearers, they rejoice temporarily, think they have something good because it sounds so easy, especially the way it's presented to them in modern day religion. They receive the gospel with joy. They have a temporary faith. But when a little persecution or a little temptation comes around, they leave, they quit, they get choked, they dry up. That's temporary faith, but there's a special, peculiar faith for God's people. Now, God's people are peculiar, period. They're peculiar because they have a special union with the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the elect, the Holy Ghost takes up his habitation in their hearts. They are his temple. The Father dwells in them, and the Son dwells in them, and the Spirit, or by the Spirit, and they walk with God, converse with God, and they become a peculiar people. Now, this dwelling in the human being, this dwelling in the elect, Let's take a look at John 17:21. John 17:21 in our Lord's priestly high prayer for his people. He makes mention of his people all the way through it, those that thou hast given me. 
You have a disciple, sure, but others too. In fact, every individual that the Father gave him back in eternity that would be called and saved in time, not all at once, but down through the generations of thousands of years as their time came to be. Verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. So he's saying that he and the Father are one one more time. He said it in John 10 and they picked up stones to stone him. But this was his prayer. There's nobody here to throw rocks. And they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Can you imagine being one with God the Son and God the Father? And you are one by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son. I've got another scripture for you concerning that. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.19. 1 Corinthians 6.19. Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This vile body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, boy, is that a mystery. It's as great as the mystery of godliness, Christ in the flesh. But can you imagine God in our flesh, the Holy Spirit dwelling in these vile, wicked bodies that just love to be pleased? This is indeed a mystery. And so it says that you're not your own. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. You're bought with a price. What price? all the gold and silver and precious jewels in the whole world, piled in a pile that would be higher than any mountain on earth, is not the price of your body and soul. The price was the perfect, spotless, sinless blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, it, and that only. God requires nothing else. But what a precious payment it is. There's only one, and it's only it's been paid. There is no more blood. It's unavailable. Anybody needs any from now on, they can't get it. It's been paid. And it's been paid for the elect. Nobody else enters in on it. Nobody else is bought. But do you know that most of the world, anybody that goes to church, no matter what church they go to, they say that their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Just because the Bible's speaking about God's people being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do they act like it? No, not at all. They haven't got the slightest idea what you're talking about. 
They don't even know the work of the Holy Spirit. They don't know that convicting work, that reproving work, how he brings the sinner down in hardship, in labor, in tribulation, presenting tons of their sins before their eyes and heart, making them, breaking that heart, making them be a praying person. Do you know where a person learns to pray? It's under Holy Spirit conviction. You can't just learn to pray by going to school. You don't learn to pray by listening to others. You learn to pray when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on your heart and life and you begin to be a beggar. You can't help but pray. And let me tell you before God saves you, you have prayed enough that you are a prayer. Okay, let's see where we are. We said that God indwells this elect. Now, the talk of the elect is special, peculiar. Look at Philippians 3.20. Philippians 3.20. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conversation. You know why we have conversation in heaven? Because when we converse with God, when we are praying morning, noon, and night from anywhere, our conversation is in heaven because that's where our Lord Jesus Christ is. He's the one that hears our prayer. He's the one that we talk to. We don't talk to ourselves. We don't talk to a statue. We don't mumble something because we have beads around our neck and feel a certain one and have to say certain things. We have our conversation in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our mediator, who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, making intercession for us. Therefore, even to the uttermost they can come unto him because he makes this intercession. We talk differently, peculiar. Our conversation's in heaven. And we look for him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. We believe in heaven. We believe he's there. That's why we look there for him. How many people actually that you know believe in heaven? If they do, they sure don't act like it, do they? They don't believe in heaven, and they certainly don't believe in hell, or they would do something about their talk and their walk. But you see, man is totally helpless to do one thing toward improving himself unless God the Holy Spirit quickens their heart. And when he quickens their heart, the first thing he's going to show them is that they're a sinner and need Christ. And then it starts. That's the beginning. That's the start. We're talking about the walk of God's peculiar people, the elect. Look at Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14. 
Titus is a very small book, but boy is it ever put together great. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. He's paid for all of our sin, you see. Past, present, and future. This is hard to imagine. And purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now, this purifying isn't to perfection. It's a work that goes on all of our life. There's no coming to the end and saying you are completely pure. You are now a perfect individual. This never happens on earth. Now, it's very possible that when you get as good as you're ever going to be, the Lord might take you home. I don't understand that. He takes people home at all stages of life, in stages of success in preaching, stages of dismay. When we think of uh, some of the Puritans that he took out in their 20s, some in their 30s, and then some he didn't save like Joseph Hart till he was 58 and then took him out just five or six years later. John the Baptist, a young man, 30 years old, a great one. Our Lord said there hasn't been a man born of woman any greater than John the Baptist. The messenger of the Messiah. And he dies right then in his youth, in his strength, full of the Holy Ghost. The Lord takes him out. So you see, you don't know. Purify himself. Maybe he was as pure as you're going to get. Purify unto himself a peculiar people. Zealous of good works. We like to do good things. We find that we're very pathetic at doing them. Once in a while we accomplish something good. You know, I feel if I can give a Bible away or give a good book away, I have done something that's about as good as anything that I can do is to put something into somebody's hands that will help them for eternity. As far as loaning them money, loaning them your car, loaning them anything, you're spinning your wheels. Give them something for eternity. Now, why are saints compared to wheat? Because wheat is the product of a rare and choice seed. You see, the seed that forms the new creature is the Holy Spirit. Now, wheat is useful. It's good for food, excellent for nourishment. And a nation is happy that has an abundance of wheat. And happy that nation that has abundance of Christians. But there's no such thing anymore. England thrived once with great Christians. Wonderful Puritan preachers. But at the time, their government was persecuting them. Talk about wheat. Europe is starving right now. Russia's in a terrible condition. They need wheat. 
they need Christians. Now, God's people are very special to him, even though they aren't treated so by the world. That's interesting, huh? Look at John 15, verses 18 and 19. John 15, 18 and 19 If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, you can't think of a reason why that should be. There is no reason according to real reasoning why that should be. And if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated. Now there's a reason. The Lord Jesus Christ has chosen us out of the world. That's talking about election also. All of God's people are chosen people. Chosen back before the foundation of the world. And if God the Father chose us, God the Son chose us also. But he did a little bit more. He paid our sin debt. He has a special work. And then there's a special work of God's Holy Spirit to make it real to our hearts. You and I never see the Lord Jesus Christ. We never see the Father. But we feel the work of God's Holy Spirit. We experience it. What thoughts, what opening of heart, what convictions, what reprovings that we have are all the results of God's Holy Spirit bringing us down and making Christ real to our hearts. It's all of God. Now, in some stages, you can't tell wheat from tares. It's only when the fruit appears that the tares are discovered. Well, let's look at our parable a second. I want you to look over that again. In Matthew 13, verse 26. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the work of God's Spirit is direct, individual, personal to the child of God, even though they're surrounded by other wheat, which would be other Christians, or surrounded by tares. And the tares are going to be there to the end. You got that much from the parable? They're going to stay right to the end of the world. And though outwardly they look alike, the empty professors will inwardly hate the child of God because they have God's word and live by it. Now there's an inward difference even though you can't tell by the outward. Look at John 17:14. John 17:14 gives you one of the marks. What makes God's child different? They love the word. 
I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they're not of this world, even as I am not of the world. But you see, the tares try to imitate. Look at Titus 1.16. Here we go back to old Titus again. Three times tonight. Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God. But in works, they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient unto every good work, reprobate. You see, you can't do a good work unless you're in Christ. All those things I described to you this morning of the normal righteousnesses that the world calls righteous are abominable in God's eyes because they don't count for salvation in the normal, natural human being wants them to be in the scale to count toward their salvation. The better they live, the better chance they think they have of going to heaven. It's just like a scale. Put all their goods on one side and they really uh, <laughs> take away or, or kind of forget all the bad and just put a few on that side and the good's supposed to outweigh the bad and they go to heaven. They profess that they know God but in their works, they deny him. They can't help it. They can't do a good work because they're not in Christ. I want to give you an example of how the tares hate the wheat. Turn to Luke 18.10. Luke 18.10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a tear and the other a wheat. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. You see, they can't help but hate other people, especially one with a broken and a contrite spirit, one who will not even lift up his head, hanging it down in shame because of sin and debauchery, but needing forgiveness. He thanks God that he's not like other men are. These other men have a reason for coming to Christ. They have a reason for coming to God for forgiveness. If they're an extortioner, unjust, an adulterer, they need forgiveness. He doesn't need any. He never asked for forgiveness. Never. His prayer is said to always saying what he has done. He can't ask for forgiveness because he don't feel in need of it. He's righteous in his eyes. 
But they can't help but despise God's people. They don't like them. And it comes out. I thank thee I'm not as other men are, even as this publican. What a difference. I told you. That's an example of how the tares don't like the wheat, though they imitate them. Now a little bit about tares or ungodly people. These are unbelievers who do everything else in life that we do, except believe the truth of the gospel and come to Christ as a lost sinner begging for mercy. They can do everything else, but that's the one thing they don't do is come to Christ as a beggar. What does our parable teach concerning tares? Is there anything good about them? The ungodly are a base sort of people. Low and contemptible, tares good for nothing. Now we get that from the names given to them in God's word, and they are called the sons of Belial, unprofitable, rude, untamable. We'll look at a couple of scriptures and we'll have to close. Our time is running out and we'll get on with tares next time we meet. But turn to Second Samuel 23. Second Samuel 23, verse 6. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. That's one example of the tares being called sons of Belial. Now turn to Romans 3.12. Romans 3.12. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none doeth good, no, not one. They are called the children of the wicked one. Turn to Matthew 13, 38. Matthew 13, 38. That's in our parable. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Tares are also called children of darkness. Look at Ephesians 4.4. 4. Ephesians 4.4. 4. There's nothing good said about ungodly people in the scriptures. And the ungodly in our parable are the tares. Ephesians 4.4 4, 4 through 6 No, that's not the right That's the wrong scriptures. Can't find it. Two 
No, that's not the one I had for the children of darkness. I just made a mistake in copying uh, some numbers. Five, six through eight. Okay, that's that, that'll do. Let no man, uh, Ephesians 5, 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words, because of these things come of the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, but ye were sometimes darkness. But now are ye light in the Lord, walk as children of light. And they're also called the children of this world, Luke 20, 34. Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. Uh, we'll, we're going to have to close our tape. is about to go out. We'll continue on with descriptions in the scriptures about tares or ungodly people. Now, they're just called tares in this parable. They're called everything else in the scriptures, all pointing up to those who are unbelievers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad you all came out tonight and those that are listening by tape.